2: Welcome to Jupiter's Almanac. I'm Matthew Rayford, the great-great-great-grandson of Jupiter Gillyard, a former slave who bought the land I now farm in Georgia nearly 150 years ago. Through the years, my ancestors have passed on some essential and hard-earned wisdom about growing and producing the food we eat. It's my great honor to share that inheritance and to invite other farmers from Georgia and around the country to share their tips with you.
3: It's an opportunity for us to slow down and to connect and to plug in. And the farm does that in a way that lets you connect and appreciate the life that exists and nurture and cultivate that. And then extend that to the relationships to the people who are in that house with you and your community.
2: So if you are just starting out, reconnecting with the land or a seasoned farmer, join the conversation. And to be honest with you, it was like, would Warren come out and say, hey, I want to be a farmer? Probably not. I I consider myself a city kid. You know, when we initially got a horse, you know, I have that New York City mindset, a horse, I'm thinking thoroughbred horse, aqueduct racetrack, (laughs) Belmont (laughs) racetrack, those type of things, you know, and, and, and slowly but surely, I'm starting to understand a lot more.
3: I do
1: remember early on, like, you know the first month or two of dating how we would daydream about starting a farm together and it's kind of like hold on let's like pump the brakes and get to know each other first and then talk about that you know
3: (laughs) so what got me into chickens um i always joke and say that a chicken saved my life um and it very much so did i'm interested in black liberation that's ecological and that's not contingent upon <sighs> these systems giving us anything. There's also something that's beyond this that I want and that I seek for our for our people and that's intimacy with the land and that's reliability. And so for us, it's also this idea of connecting people back to the land and connecting our um, folks back to their ancestry. So what does it mean to organically sustainably farm in our current economy and time?
2: Please subscribe to Jupiter's Almanac, wherever you get your podcast. Hey,
4: hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host at Beer Sessions Radio. We're recording remotely, and today is Tuesday, October 6th, 2020. And while we're in the pandemic, recording from this program on the internet, not in our studio, uh, we're Zooming in on Asheville, North Carolina today, and uh, a couple of the the pioneers in that craft beer community. So let's introduce our guest. First, uh, Leah, please introduce yourself.
3: Hey, I'm Leah Ashburn. I'm the president and CEO of Highland Brewing in Asheville, and I'm also a second-generation family owner.
4: That's great. And Mike?
5: Hey, everybody. I'm Mike Rangel, president of Asheville Brewing Company, located in beautiful Western North Carolina.
6: Beautiful. And Vince? Hey, I'm Vince Terci, uh, co-owner and head brewer at Dissolver in Asheville, North Carolina. That's great. So
4: we're zooming in on Asheville. Asheville is one of those mythical craft beer communities and arts up in the hills that, that so many of us want to go to. To me, in, in my mind, it's, it's what Portland, Oregon was, and, and now everyone's going to Asheville. So we're lucky to have uh, Leah and Mike here, two of the first craft breweries in that area. Uh, so Leah, just give us your backstory. Tell us about Highland Brewing and, and also what
3: it was like at the time when you opened. Right. Well, we opened in 1994 and my father is the founder. Uh, He is actually the most recent recipient of the Brewers Award. Uh, It's just called a recognition award by the Brewers Association. And so this is one award they give annually. There's only 34 people on the planet that have it. So that's that's been a really wonderful thing to celebrate him in our 26th year of existence. Uh, But we started in a basement in downtown Asheville. And uh, dad started it as sort of a second career slash retirement gone horribly wrong. And he is at an absolute ball after selling his engineering company and partnering up with an award-winning brewer and uh, starting this thing in a basement. Now we're on a a hilltop with 40 acres on the east side of Asheville with a great destination. And it's uh, bigger than he ever dreamed um, as is the beer industry in Asheville and in the country.
4: Yeah, so that, the Gaelic Ale is, is, is one of your, your more well-known beers. Um, uh, tell me the, the early days of Highland Brewery, because it, it was the first brewery in Asheville since Prohibition. Were there any uh, legislation that had to be changed, or you know, what was your dad up against back then?
3: I think he he was up against a lot of confusion, not that it was illegal to open a brewery, it was legal. And um, our dear friend, Uli Benowitz, who owns Weeping Radish on the coast of North Carolina, he actually was the one that got the laws changed in the state. Um, So our brewery is more like the 12th or 13th in existence um, that that started in North Carolina. So by that time it was legal, it was just really confusing. So uh, lots of, Back and forth about how to even permit a brewery. What what do you even need to do before it's a yes by all of the entities? So it took longer than usual, or longer than it should have, um, with to get everything lined up. But that's kind of you know the way it goes when you got all the government agencies involved, right? It's still true today. Now, what are the
4: things that that made Asheville beer city? I mean, you you opened, and then and then wh- what were the other breweries that that opened after you?
3: Um, I mean, Mike opened um, Asheville Brewing, but Mike, you—it was two moons before that, right?
5: It was. Uh, they were. They they uh, came from Portland, Oregon, with the uh, McMinnemans concept. It, um, <clears throat> they so they were trying to kind of replicate a brewery movie theater thing, and they they lasted about six months.
3: Oh, so that's when you took it over? Yes. I, I had up. no idea. <laughs>
4: Yeah. So Mike, tell, tell us that. So you, it was a, like a pizza place, movie theater, brew pub.
5: Yes. We, uh, my, my background, I, I moved to Asheville, uh, in 95 and, um, my background was more in the, uh, the pizza world and culinary. I'd, I'd run some restaurants. And so, uh, I'd opened a pizza place here for a couple of years and I was looking for a sit down, uh, place and there was a a uh, cool little movie theater, brew pub, uh, restaurant right down the street from us that was um, not being managed very well. Luckily for us, and so uh, we we came in there and and I wasn't um, much of a beer person. I'd grown up in Kentucky. I'd kind of a bourbon, um, so I, I didn't really catch on to the the crazy popularity. But all of a sudden, people were coming in and taking pictures of our of our brew house, which was about. 350 square feet so it was (laughs) uh, we knew we were kind of on to something but uh, I will also give a give a a big shout out to to Leah's pop Oscar was um, was sort of the the godfather of the of the beer community here and and very much from the very beginning um, rather than looking at the new the other folks that were opening up a couple years after they did as competition um, he it was we we were treated as compatriots and, and comrades. And it was, uh, uh, from then, I think that that really created this great environment here where the big breweries try to help the little breweries and people share knowledge. And, and a lot of times you share employees over the years. So, uh, a lot of that is, is because of Highland and, and, and the Wong family.
4: Let's get uh, Vincent. So Vince, you've opened recently, I know we we had you on Beer Sessions Radio just about a year and a half ago, even before you opened. Um, What was it about Asheville that that drew you and Mike there? Uh,
6: So I came down to help open the second facility for burial. And literally, like the first day that I visited, it was immediately a stark difference from the brewing scene up in new england uh i had previously been brewing up in boston and while there's a sense of camaraderie up there that's definitely blossomed over the last couple years uh boston's not exactly known for being uh the friendliest area (laughs) so just the fact that uh like what mike was talking about in terms of everybody being helpful and nice and a, a genuine sense of camaraderie and the feeling that we're all in this together. Uh, that was a big drawing point for uh, me wanting to stick around to Asheville and really set roots down. And when Mike came and visited, he was blown away by the same thing. So it's just, it's a community that kind of makes you feel like you're at home.
4: Well, that's great. And Leah, um, what were some of the first beers that really took off for you guys? Or, or was it just about the beer? Or was it about the place, you know, what? because Highlands Brewing keeps coming up and it seems to be very popular.
3: Uh, that's good. That's good to hear. here. Um, Gaelic Ale was our first beer and it's still our flagship. That's an amber ale that pairs beautifully with food and is super drinkable by anybody, whether you're, um, you know, new to craft beer, if you, you know, might say you're afraid of dark beer and it's just kind of in the middle of the road, amber color, and we still, that still leads for Highland, which is which is really wonderful. And then uh, I think our my damn man Mike, you might even know more than I, because because I wasn't here during that time. But I know oatmeal porter was way back in the day. It actually first developed from an error that we made in a beer, and we blended some things, and and that turned into its own style. So oatmeal porter's been around for probably 20 years at least, um, and it's still. A great seller for us so we kind of started there we did a, a lager earlier on um but you know this is when craft beer was pretty new so there was no american ipa it did not exist and that is so hard to imagine now when it's it's the top style and it just keeps growing and growing um we made a british ipa maybe 10 years in and uh and have just totally revolutionized things in recent years as the industry has changed. So it's been really exciting to kind of hang on to some of the classic traditional styles that still do well for us and then have a whole slew of new things that really reflect today's craft beer industry.
4: That's a good point. And Mike, if you can join in, you know, what, what was craft beer like in the nineties? You know, we know now, yeah, it's hazy IPAs, it's sours. What, what was craft beer like in the nineties for you? That's
5: a, it's a, Great question. I was just thinking when Leah was talking about how much I, I really like the oatmeal porter, and mm-hmm. there was there was a, a moment where, for me, just as even even when I was already involved as a as a brewery owner, that I kind of had that moment of realization that the sky's the limit for a beer. Like it, it didn't have to taste like one of the big three, you know, domestic things that we were we were all used to drinking. So it was. Um, I just all of a sudden I, I went down the the dark beer path and stouts and and porters and just like oh my I mean this was um, you know it was it was a a, a metamorphosis but back then there was a, there was a lot um, less hops there was a lot less uh, technical um, what's the right word just the the education the things that that you could do back then um, were limited in scale and so. Now, you know, there's a lot more science and the technology has caught up and has allowed the smaller brewers to to have labs and to be incredibly precise with the beers they're making. Um, so it, it's been a, it's been a great change from from that point of view. The, the kind of Wild Wild West days are sort of over from having to kind of create your own equipment or fix your own equipment, which was one of the challenges in the early days.
4: Yeah, no, I'm sure a lot of things have changed. In just terms of styles, to me, it seems that beer with color, amber ales, and darker beers were definitely what what made people what they people wanted, right? Back in the '90s, early 2000s, um, I remember that myself. Yeah. Um, you know, j- jumping ahead now, so so Vince, um, you know, t- tell us about what it's been like opening. You know, we we have the elephant in the room is COVID. You know, we all know about it. We don't want to talk about it anymore, but we have to. You guys opened not too far, not too long ago, and then you're dealing with COVID. So just tell us what it's like opening right before COVID.
6: Uh, Yeah, so Asheville usually sees um, a bit of a dip in tourism. We're fairly tourist-centric. So that dip will usually happen right around Christmas, and then you've got the slower couple months of January, February. And then as the weather starts to warm up again in March – Uh, sales will pretty much steadily increase throughout the year until about November, December, when they'll start to do the, like the tourism dip again. Uh, So we got to experience the dip of December, January and February, and then COVID happened. And we were closed for the same number of days as we were open before COVID happened. So that was pretty cool. Um, But uh, it's, it pushed us to innovate in different ways and try and do different, new and exciting things. Like we were open for curbside and online delivery. So that really pushed us towards doing different things with social media. It really pushed us towards just abandoning altogether, the idea of flagships for us and really just going after one-off beers, which then helped dial in specific processes and procedures. Um, and taught us a lot more about our equipment at a faster rate. So we just kind of pivoted to uh, being a little bit more uh, pliable with whatever the target market was looking for. So just brewing sexier styles, making a bunch of beer that looks like Play-Doh, you know, that whole thing. And
4: what were the restrictions in, in North Carolina that impacted your brewery?
6: Yeah, so North Carolina, if you were not, uh, if if you were a bar or a restaurant and I can get into how they classify bars, which is a little strange, but you were not allowed to be open, but because we were a production facility, uh, same as uh, Asheville Brewing Company or Highland or uh, Burial, Yurisco, any, any of these other breweries around here, you were allowed to be open for uh, to-go sales. So no on-premise consumption, but you were allowed to still sell beer. So, Uh, You were still allowed to manufacture and package uh, like grocery stores could still be open and send and have their beer, but your entire market changed because there's no restaurants, no bars, no draft essentially draft died overnight uh, the same as it did kind of across the country. So moving to all packaged product was a pretty big shift and moving to direct to consumer was a pretty big shift as well. So having to send a bunch of stuff out of state, became a necessity. Um, I mean, for us, we were lucky because it's a 15-barrel brew house and we're on par to be about 1,300 barrels in year one. But for guys like Highland and Asheville Brewing where they have significantly larger, I, I'd be genuinely interested to hear how that was for them because the, the shift for for us was like, oh, okay, well, we'll put more into cans. Um <laughs> But, yeah, I can only imagine that for you guys it was a dramatically different situation,
4: yeah, Leah, you want to join in?
3: Yeah, sure. We kind of went through these different stages, and I still remember so clearly holding my breath because we didn't know immediately that we could stay in business. We were watching other states, and some of them were were saying that breweries could not produce at all. Um, and some were saying that they could. So it took a minute to figure out that we were going to be deemed an essential business. And I remember, the weight that lifted off of my shoulders. I was at my dining room table and I literally screamed and fist pumped because I was so relieved. And once I knew that we could um, keep producing beer, um, I knew we would find out we well we could still sell through grocery stores. Um, we could. We were able to to keep our staff, um, and and so then we started thinking about what else we could do. And um, so two things happened. We we went touchless wherever we could. So um, building sinks, like freestanding sinks in all of our public areas and going for touchless payment and one-way traffic, one-way people traffic where we can do that. Um, of course, spacing out the tables and everything that, that everybody has done to adjust. Um, and then we figured out ways to, to give because we knew that um, we, would, we had more than most and our, our bar friends are still closed. So it's become, it's a, it's just a really difficult time still for so many people, especially in hospitality. And um, so we, we gave to a local fund uh, when we sold beer to go, we would give a percentage of that back to a local fund that helped hospitality workers. And we also gave away a free roll of toilet paper when we started doing to-go sales. And that was really fun, but also really needed. Um, so we kind of had a good time with it, uh, with making the changes that were like a mix of necessary and creative.
4: Right, and Mike, what about you guys at Asheville Brewing?
5: Uh, it was it was uh, a lot of the same same things, having to kind of a uh, you know shift on the fly and or, or pivot, as everybody's saying. Um, we were uh, uh, as a movie theater and a restaurant. Also, um, we kind of had the triple whammy on, on, uh, March 15th, we had our 25th year anniversary. And then on March 17th, we had to lay off 160 people.
4: So it was, uh, (laughs) yeah,
5: you know, and so, and I, I think the, you know, the, there's the financial and the emotional and all that is, you know, it's it's devastating all around. And like Leah said, we feel fortunate that we've been in business a little bit longer and we're able to withstand it. You know, that's going to be a really, uh, tough winter, and we're going to be relying on all the things that that uh, Vince said on uh, carry out on d- direct to consumer delivery to uh, using um, online services to, to deliver our beer to states we would never even thought about going to, and, and it's become quite a. Uh, I kind of kick myself for for never really pursuing that avenue before, of sending beer to. Ohio and, and Pennsylvania and stuff like that. And it's Asheville has become uh synonymous with beer. And so I think that's that's helped everybody in in our market that other areas really want to buy our beer and stuff. But um, you know, it's it's we've we're down about eighty five to eighty eight percent on our sales versus um uh, last year. Um so um, we our canning and our packaging percentages have gone up a lot, but like, uh, like said, the draft is non-existent pretty much.
4: Yeah. Um, we're we're seeing that everywhere that I think one of the biggest changes we've seen in New York city is, is that legally a, a breweries are able to deliver home delivery themselves, which, which is a, a big change. Uh, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm ordering from New York city. I, I want some dissolver Asheville and Highland beer, uh, You guys each tell me one beer that I should order and it could be delivered to me in New York city.
3: (laughs) Uh, I don't think any of them can be delivered to you in New York city. So you're going to have to visit Asheville, which you will love. And I'll first you, I'll first direct you to Gaelic. You got to go classic.
4: I'm going to try Gaelic. And I, and there's a, I'm, I'm into hot sauces right now. There's a Hatch chili company called Zia Hatch Chili. And a couple of weeks ago, they made a, a beer queso with your Gaelic ale, oh, and nice. I have a really great picture of that I'm going to post. I'm going to ask you guys also if you're drinking any beers, um, please take a picture so we can post them later. But so i drink drinking the Gaelic. What, what what would I get from uh, Asheville, Mike? And can you um, ship to New York?
5: You, New York is one of the states that at this point uh, does not allow beer shipments. Um, so we have people that, that go to New Jersey and, and we send stuff there to like and There's a beer store that, that we, for whatever reason, we sell a lot of beer too. And so we, we tell people from New York if they want to get something to go there. So I would, I would recommend from us the, uh, the Ninja Porter. Um, it's one of our, one of our classics. Um, it's our, our most, um, award award winning beer. Um, and, if, um, still my favorite it's got chocolate and caramel and
4: um, all kinds of fun notes sounds good and what about you vince i mean so yeah new york i know new york state has its own different different regulations i know for in-state it's pretty amazing if you have a brewery in new york you can really sell anywhere um what 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 would i get uh from dissolver right now
6: vince uh so we just rolled out one beer, I know I said that we don't have flagships, but there is one beer that I brew uh, very repeatedly. It's called Thank You for Existing. It's our uh, it's our take on a Kolsch. So it's a little bit hoppier than your typical uh, traditional Kolsch, but that same ultra crisp, zippy, refreshing uh, Kolsch kick that you're, you're looking for, dry finish. It's awesome.
4: That's great. And uh, Leah, I want to ask you about th- there's one beer, Cold Mountain Spiced Ale. That you release annually. Tell us about that. How did that
3: start? The story of that because that's got a little myth to it. It does. It has this kind of legendary following, which we're really grateful for. And it's. I think this will be our twenty-third year of Cold Mountain. So yeah, spiced winter ale. And I just tried some from the, from the bright today. It's like a test batch to set up our whole seasonal. Uh, shipments which are going to start in November. So we have a party every year for Cold Mountain because it has such a, such a great following and it's named really after a mountain. So Cold Mountain is visible from our rooftop bar. And there was also a book called Cold Mountain by Charles Frazier, an amazing local author. And that book was turned into a movie with Nicole Kidman and I can't remember what that guy's name is. So um it was interesting to see kind of the effect on, on the beer as people got exposed to the book and the movie and it just grew, but uh, so it really beer, kicked off the
4: holidays. The mountain came first. The beer came second. The movie came third.
3: Yeah. Well, and the, and the book was in between the mountain and the beer. <laughs>
4: <laughs> wow. You know, I'm talking, it's, it's a family business. I'm going to, I'm going to jump over. I want to hear about that because you know the craft beer industry is, not not too long ago, your dad was just starting this business, you know, in, in my lifetime, 25, 28 years, isn't that long ago. Um, so what's it like being in the craft industry? You know, we've seen a lot of breweries that when, the, when the founders are getting at around their 20th year, you know, you've got victory, you you've got blue point in New York, their, their founders sold, sold. So what does it take to keep a craft brewery and a family business and keep that going? And, and how do you feel, uh, how do you feel like you probably stand out in in the craft beer community, don't you? I mean, usually second generation you've picked up a lot of wisdom.
3: <laughs> One would hope um, I mean I'm unusual as a female half minority also in the craft brewing industry, so there's all kinds of layers to it. But I think what worked for us as far as me coming into the family business is that I didn't come straight to it. I didn't um, join the company until two thousand and eleven and I had asked for a job. Years and years prior to that, um, a couple of years after I got out of school, maybe, and uh, Dad turned me down. Like that was—it was a flat, like no. And and I know now, I didn't know anything. Um, probably didn't have much to offer back then, and he didn't need me on staff. So I set about finding my own way. That's how I was directed, and I I did that. But it was another. It was a total of like 16 years of conversation, me and Dad, him watching. What I was learning as an independent contractor for most of that time in my career, and me learning about the brewery and how it was delicious beer, but it was also more than just a brewery. And I'm sure Mike and Vince feel the same way. That's the that's the passion and the energy that goes into owning a business and being able to come back every day. Like you better love something about it, and it's probably several things, and you got to find meaning in it. And uh, so I, I've I've been here for, what is it, almost 10 years. And uh, it's been the wildest ride of my life. Um, I still work with my dad. He is doing less. Uh, He does as much as he wants to. And it's wonderful to have him around, but he's away for two weeks right now. And and that's fine. And I roped my husband into working here. So he's here full time and he's an engineer and a builder. So that's been amazing as we have continued to build on this hilltop and do the rooftop bar and the Volleyball courts that we just finished and all kinds of things. So it's, it's, he's been a wonderful partner and support. Um, and all we talk about is the brewery when we go home.
4: So it's a real destination,
3: your spot. It is. It is. We, we ship most of our beer away from here, but we also have a great destination.
4: That's great. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. We're talking about zooming into Asheville, North Carolina, on this remote show uh, in October 2020. So here we are. It's the org. Become a member. So Leah from uh, Highland Brewing in Asheville. We were talking about taking over a family business, but you said that you're a, a minority and a woman uh, running a business. T- tell us about that. How that, you know... What it's like in the craft beer industry?
3: Well, people that are attracted to the craft beer industry are generally pretty cool folks. So um, it's 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 been great. I mean, I could find stuff when I've been patted on the head verbally by uh, someone who has been in the business for a long time, who is you know an older male. But the vast majority of the time, I feel like i'm I'm welcomed and supported and um i I know that my dad's perspective has been that women add to the brewery they add so much, and he's got some funny jokes about uh the guys you know will will run up any hill and put a ladder up against any wall, and the women will ask which hill and which wall before those things are done <laughs> <laughs> but uh. No, it's, it's been great. I I am very fortunate to be in this position and um, have learned and taken on some really good advice to be surrounded by people who want you to succeed. And that counts for everybody. And that counts for your neighbors. And um, Mike and I don't have lunch often enough, but I he's one of the kindest people in town. And um, we've done a we don't get together enough. It's it's too much. But anyway, um, but I think so highly of him and when dissolver first opened um Vince correct me but I think we did the first collaboration that you guys did
6: uh it was the first Asheville collaboration yep
3: cool yeah yeah so we kind of took like the newest brewery in town and the oldest brewery in town and and did a beer together so there's there's always ways to kind of reach out and I and I feel like I've been um in a really good spot to do that so whether you know Women, half minority, there's a ton of conversations we could have about that. But overall, um, I, it's been a good ride. And Leah, just wh- how many different hats do you wear? Just tell us like a typical
4: day in, in, in your job.
3: I think the key to that is that I don't brew. So my life is literally in the hands of professional brewers and the quality team and packaging folks and distribution. Um, I did sales for a long time, but it. It's not my nature to do sales. I can kind of fake it for a while and it wears me out. so um, definitely rely on our entire sales team. we've just got amazing people here and and my job I think, is to steer the ship. so I'm creating the vision. what you know who we want to be and how do we dive into that definition? How do we clarify that vision so that we're the company that that I really believe in Because if I don't believe in it fully, um, I won't be able to translate that. To the folks that are working with us, so um, we've decided not to be the biggest company. That's never been our goal. Um, at 26 years, we're either much we're much smaller than a lot of breweries that are that are close to our age. Um, a lot of breweries aren't around too, so I don't know if we hit a happy medium. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of looking at the long range view. I am looking at um, how we interact with the community. Um, and so like a, give, a big giving program that we have right now was a, an idea that I had. And then the company, all the teammates ran with it. And it is really awesome right now. It's called Give Back with Gaelic. And um, I'm really thrilled that we can, we can find that, that way to partner with wholesalers and get our whole team involved to do something that supports people in need uh, during a crazy time. So there, that's where I really find value is, um, is connecting whether it's with um, our vendors our community, all of that. And that's, that's, that's always part of my day.
4: That's great. You know, it's really great to talk. The thing about a long time family business, few businesses keep the same identity or name for even 20 years, you know, even some big phone company guarantee within 20 years they've merged or, or they've changed some part of their identity. And it's very rare to, to be able to go beyond one generation. Um, what What's something that changed or that you feel like you made a difference and, you know, since your time there, I'm sure that you've you've had to evolve. I mean, did you change branding or do anything that, that you feel was needed to move forward?
3: Yes, we did. It's crazy that you asked that because it's spot on. Um, in 2018, we changed our brand. And so the brand has been around for a very long time and it suited us well. And it was perfect when we came out. It was uh, like this Scotsman. And he's got the bagpipe and the beer and there's plaid around him. And that was, that was a perfect image for us and perfect branding when we opened in 94 and our only beer was Gaelic. And we had Scottish ties, the Scots-Irish settlement here still pervades in um, religion and in music and in dance, and in different ways in in the Appalachian Mountains, so we were calling back to that history, and I still honor that, because our name Highland, I would never change, never change, but I did change the visual completely, and it was um, super crazy expensive, don't want to do it again, and uh, worth every penny, though, so we took a really deep dive um, going in, thinking that we would make a small change, like the little, you know, Starbucks, and Wendy's, and all that, those those companies will change their brand just a little bit, pretty often, to kind of modernize it. And I thought we might do that. But once we took a deep dive, we discovered that our brand and our beer and our team were not aligned. And if we completely changed the brand, we could get that up to date with who our team was, what our company was, and what our beer was saying. So we did it. Uh, I I remember showing Dad the brand new revolutionary very different brands and told him why we were going to do it. And he asked if I liked it. And I said, yes, I gave him all the reasons. And he was like, okay. And he turned on his heel and walked away. It was amazing. So I, uh, I went through with that, showed it to the team, um, eventually got it out, told all the distributors, made it a big, a big to do. And it was definitely the right thing to do. So, uh, really scary, really expensive, definitely the right thing.
4: And you had to change all your t-shirts too, didn't you?
3: <laughs> oh, you have no idea. I had mean, every t-shirt, can, bottle, label, box, sign. T- it's just unbelievable how far it goes. And no matter how well you plan it, you are still going to waste some money.
4: I mean, redesign in in any brand is, is so tricky because I've seen a lot of breweries that do that, you know, and you're like, whoa, I I, I the old brand, you know, the design was okay, but the new one doesn't look anything like it. I feel like your brand is really great. Like see, seeing this new Highland identity really stands out. So I think you did a great job, but let's Thank ask, you. I'm going to ask Vince about it. Cause Vince, you guys really have a, a design forward, you know, aesthetic. Um, tell us about how important that is to your brand.
6: Oh man. Uh, design and creativity is, I would say, pivotal to what we're trying to do here with dissolver Uh, my business partner and co-founder uh and best friend mike semenek is our creative genius behind all of the visuals and the general brand direction that we're taking with dissolver so he comes from a background where uh, social media video editing um like you're you're kind of like dabbling in weird niche music styles. He's very tapped into just the general zeitgeist and he's got a really good finger on the pulse of what's happening, um, today, uh, along with like social media and trying to stay hyper present with all of that because it changes so quickly. So we've tried to adapt a brand that kind of embraces that. And I think he's done a a really good job at our brand looks like nobody else's. It's pretty cool.
4: So that's, but that's your brand is that it's always changing. It's so creative. It's not like there's not one image that defines you.
6: No, I mean, if you have never checked out our Instagram, I could not possibly recommend that more. It's like the best business card anyone could have. Uh, If it's all one continuous picture. And then if you tag into any of the individual posts, whether it's a video or a slideshow or whatever, it's also one continuous picture. It's crazy. So, uh, I mean, yeah, it's allowed us to develop this brand identity that goes beyond uh, one individual beer and it kind of develops and has adopted this, um, the mentality of brewed until surreal. That's our tagline, but surrealism is very much ingrained in what we're trying to do. It's not, just a brewery. It's not a lifestyle company. It's kind of its own entity. And we've treated the brand and the brand identity like that and kind of let it grow and do its own thing. And um, I mean, we did a beer uh, right when like Tiger King, that Netflix documentary came out, we (laughs) immediately dropped a Tiger King beer. Uh, (laughs) The Cardi B song WAP came out and we dropped a beer. Uh, hard Seltzer that was <laughs> uh, aptly named after a line in that song. So uh, it's it's allowed us to exist in the old world and the new world simultaneously, which has been just a ton of fun.
4: That's great. Well, I was going to say, when I do go to your Instagram, when I, when I click it, the first thing, I just wish that I would click it and get a free beer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you need that function. But um, that's the one thing, especially with all this remote everything, is that I still love just going into a pub or a, a beer bar or a restaurant or a brewery and being able to see what's in there and, and taste it. And uh, I wonder, Mike, tell us about, about your place, Asheville Brewing, because it was originally built as a movie theater, pizza. It's a place for people to go. So how, how did you grow that and keep it going all those years? Because th- that was probably a big part of your place,
5: yeah. We we were we definitely feel very comfortable as a neighborhood brew pub. Um, that because Asheville is on the on kind of on the map of a lot of uh, or is a big tourist destination,s we get a lot of people coming through our doors from all over the place. Um, so, but we like to think that we're. We uh, we gear towards locals. We do things that we think the locals would like and the locals support us. And if the tourists like that too, then so much the better. Um, and I think that's that's kind of our... We we take our beer seriously, but we don't take our, ourselves seriously. We like to have a lot of fun. Our, our beer names and our beer labeling and kind of stuff is more um, kind of comic book and pop art because that's sort of... We're, we're big Star Wars nuts. We love Bill Murray. We love... Um, Austin powers that, that kind of, uh, so, and, and kudos to to Leah because when she was doing the, uh, the brand change, I, I felt so nervous for them. Mm-hmm. I was like, I was like on pins and needles, um, but they did a, a fabulous job.
3: Um, I, I think and, some people wanted to stick me with pins and needles
5: <laughs> and, and same goes with, uh, we have a, we have a really, uh, uh, great social media, um, presence, and uh, we definitely noticed when when Dissolver came along, how strong of a, and how how true to their. You can kind of tell what beer you are going to get by looking at the at the artwork on the can, or by what they're posting, and and that's that's ideal. That's you know we're we're finding there are people that like our brand that don't drink beer, they just like what we represent, or they like the art that we push, or what we what sort of social causes we, we lean into. Um, so it's kind of fun having non-beer drinkers wear our shirts and, you know, and I'm sure that happens with the, with the other two folks too.
4: It um, just shows you how popular craft beer is. So like, let's say, you know, it's COVID's over. We're going to have lunch with Mike and Leia. <laughs> you guys finally get to sit down and chat. What are some like, you know, Asheville craft beer business things you might want to talk about with her?
5: Goodness! Well, you can ask I would, her a
4: question. How about that? <laughs> I mean?
5: I think we would. I think a lot of this is just how you know. Uh, going back to the the family business thing, our business is a family, and you work really hard to find that that perfect combination of skill and artistry and and personality and and person. You know, people that get along with other folks, and and you can't you can can't teach people to be nice, and so. That's that's my biggest fear right now is is having to make those sort of sacrifices uh, of people that have done nothing wrong and have been completely loyal. And so I think the first thing we would I would ask Leah is how did you come out of this with your core intact of, you know, staff? and And if you did, you know, high fives.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> Leah?
3: Well, uh, a lot of it is timing. Um, There's always some good old-fashioned luck involved. Um, You know, businesses go through different times. I'm not going to say that every one of our years has been a better year and went exactly how we planned it. They haven't. And we were were in a position to weather this unforeseen thing, uh, a better position to do it, than some other years. So part of it was that. Um, And that gave me confidence and and set the tone. Um, I am sure as hell glad that this didn't happen in the first eight years, at least it was in my ninth year at Highland. Um, I can't imagine any earlier because the industry has changed so much just in the time I've been here from it growing in the mid to high teens every year and then 9% and then six and then four with the entry of thousands of craft brewers. So Mike makes a great point that, I mean, Asheville's not a big city. We've got what, 90,000 people and we've got 30 some odd breweries. So if you're not kind of a, you know, some in some way community facing and part of the the industry here, because it now is a really um, prolific industry, a visible one, a happy one, a fun one, um, then, then people are going to know. Like that, that word's going to kind of spread. So it's 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 the right thing to be part of the community, and it's it's also um, really rewarding. Like our Christmas party for the Asheville Brewers Alliance is always so much fun. It's hard to get there sometimes because we're worn out, um, but then we get together with all these awesome people and just goof off for the evening. It's great.
4: So let's talk more about th- that part of North Carolina. Is there something special in agriculture, local hops, the water, there's something there that makes the beer good. Cause I know when uh, a, a bigger brewery put their second location in, they wanted to be in, in that part of North Carolina.
3: Uh, yeah. Vince, do you want to speak to that? You're like, I'd love to hear what you have to say.
6: Oh yeah. I mean, that was a big draw for us was the fact that, we have Riverbend, Epiphany, uh, now Carolina Malt Company. Um, We have all this access to local agriculture and local malt within a very specific footprint. Like Riverbend, for instance, offers a melange of uh, malts that are within 250 to 500 miles of Asheville, which is awesome. So we can not only make beer, but make beer with a literal sense of place. And that and their malt really does have a a pretty unique characteristic to it. Um, And that, coupled with the fact that the water here is impeccable. It's amazing. Uh, Super soft, fairly low mineral content, um, great Mm -hmm. buffering capacity. So you can really kind of throw whatever at it Mm -hmm. and turn whatever beer you want uh, by just your own – modifications. And it's a lot cheaper than like going to California and opening up a brewery and having to install a, you know, five figure RO system. So your, your, your starting point is really cool with existing in an area that cares about agriculture and provides access to that. And then, you know, also coupled with the fact that there are so many awesome farms for all different kinds of produce. So you can do a lot more here because of the growing region and the support that Asheville has already uh, built on that local agriculture
4: and then for, for Mike or Leah uh, you know every state we we know that most of alcohol laws are are governed by state laws and coming from North carolina what what states are is it easier for you guys to sell beer to because I know New York State uh, is really protective of its own brewers. Um, what are some states that you're selling in? Cool. Why don't you
5: take that um, one, Leah, I, since you guys are multi-state?
3: Okay. Yeah, it's still not a long conversation. We, <laughs> we're only in five and a quarter states. So the Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, and part of Virginia. Um, so, you know, kind of going back to that, the we our goal was not to be the biggest. So it's kind of stayed in the Southeast where where the Highland history means something and the Southern Appalachians mean something. So that's where we stick.
4: So that was just like a, a regional choice. So basically to go into every state, those states you mentioned, you know, is it just about the same to get your beers registered um, any, any hurdles you have to go through?
3: Um, there are always some hurdles registration and they, they vary from state to state, but I honestly uh I don't get too far in the weeds on that one, but I, I bet some folks here would have a lot to say about about the details. Mike, do you know more about that?
5: Uh we've we've looked at different states from um you know, Alabama at one point we were from, for about fifteen minutes we thought we were gonna open a second location there. Um and you know the it was amazing how far behind they were um on on just they had no idea what, there was no laws about growlers there was no laws about uh taking things off site that were produced on site and stuff and so um the nice thing in the in the last 10 15 years organizations like pop the cap and things like that have become more organized and have, have sort of leveled the playing field so that's been that's been excellent
4: that's great there's a lot of things to talk about and and you guys have a lot of wisdom and uh, it's great, the older breweries and the new. Um, anything else you want to wrap up with? First, I also want you guys to tell me one more time the beer from each of your breweries that, that I should be drinking when I'm in Asheville.
3: You should start with Gaelic at Highlands.
5: <laughs> and Mike? Uh, a Ninja Porter from Asheville Brewing Company. And Vince?
6: Uh, thank you for existing Kolsch from Dissolver. All right. And Vince,
4: you're going to wrap it up because we've talked before. Now you've opened, you know, you, you've, you're dealing with COVID, but you're part of this community and it looks like Mike and Leah really represent this core of the Asheville craft beer scene. How did the the first breweries like, like theirs impact, you know, what Asheville has become as a beer city?
6: Uh, oh man. So they laid the groundwork for, one of the biggest reasons from a brewing perspective that I truly do actually love Asheville mm-hmm. uh, where people actually still care for uh, admire and hunt down classic styles. So up in Boston, when I was brewing up there, it was like, Oh man, you got 20 taps. Well, you'll only have 19 IPAs and they're all hazy. So, <laughs> um, but if you put a Pilsner on, it would sit for a year. Versus here, where we literally can't make enough Pilsner. Uh, We can't make enough Mertzen or Helles or Kolsch. Um, So it's, it's pretty awesome that they've laid this groundwork where the classical styles still carry weight and heft and that they've been done so well for so long that, you know, an ESB is like, well, you know, I don't really like this one because I'm not really getting as much Fuggle character which is like astounding. The general public just has a much better understanding of classic ingredients and how they're to be used appropriately in specific styles. It's, it's pretty cool. It really holds each brewer up to a higher standard for appreciating the old world and, you know, having to adapt to the modern market at the same time. Um, it really lights a fire on both ends, which is pretty cool.
4: Well, that's great. And uh, Mike, any wisdom for uh, Vince? You know, go, going through these crazy times.
5: No, I think they're doing a, a phenomenal job. I like the uh, had some of the big Amarillo. Uh, oh yeah, man, thanks. I've, dude. I've, yeah, I've been I've for some reason in the last month I've been getting into like huge IPAs and um, so uh, just keep be true to yourself. Asheville has a like you're saying they Asheville has a, a, a very high beer IQ. It's like 15 year olds know the difference between. Uh, different kinds of hops and things like that, because somebody in in this town, being as small as it is and as beer centric, everybody has a friend or a neighbor or a cousin that works at at a brewery. So, I think people realize if you're genuine and you're true, you make the kind of beer that you like to drink, and you're not trying to be trendy or anything like that. Um, people will, will find you if you, you build, you, you make a great beer in this town. People will find you.
4: That's great. And Leia, do you want to give a shout out to any of your core staff people like the the core brewers?
3: Oh, man. I well, if I do that, I'll get in trouble because I didn't do it for everybody uh, (laughs) because we do really have a tremendous team. Um, But, you know, I, I will give a special shout out right now to my dad, who is at the beach with my mom. And I'm thrilled that they're taking time together. They deserve it. And also to um, Chuck Whitehead, our VP, um, wishing his family well, and he will know every bit of what that means. That's great. You know, I, I had a feeling.
4: You know, when people ask, you know, what's your favorite this or that, they say I can't name my favorite. I had a feeling that just the way you 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 talk and the kind of business that you're running, that you wouldn't single out one employee and you'd only uh, want to mention all of them. So. It's really been great talking to, to you, Leah and Mike and Vince, and i um, really looking forward to coming down to Asheville when this is all over. And we'll resume this conversation in person. We can actually probably sit together and have a meal and a beer and do a follow-up uh, episode together, okay? So That'd thanks, everybody. You guys are great. Uh, thanks, Vince, Mike, and Leah, for joining me on Heritage Radio Network. Big shout-out to our producer, Dylan Hoyer, head engineer, Matt Patterson. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo! Okay. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.